1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, you can possibly think of, has its own history.
2: Like butter, walls, and gannets. Mm. Mm. Excellent. I had to. I had <laughs> to explain to a Polish speaker uh, the other day what gannet was. What, what to be to describe a family as a family of gannets. Um, which was where that came from because her family were she said were eating her out of house and home so I very patiently um, explained what that meant um, and, but all we could do graves, waves and raves, slaves, saves and daves, I think we should definitely do the history of daves, <laughs> do you know any, know any historic daves historic daves, yes. David Bowie David Bowie uh. <laughs> yes yeah I've met some Daves in my time. Um, Not all of them uh, good meetings. However, that is to digress monstrously (laughs) because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam Willis, that the history of the flea is, in fact, all about Victorian miniatures, it's about Mexican cultural traditions, it's about circuses, it's about the Renaissance poet John Donne and his influence on World War I poetry, and, of course, it's also about the movement of disease and the plague. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of helping out is, in fact, all about the First World War and the home front and women workers. Oh,
1: yes. And also about regencies, isn't it? We talked a little bit about Ooh, that. It's about it? regencies
2: the- and Bernardo's
1: Yes, that's that's very true, and charity. Yes. Um, you're probably wondering who's telling you all of this wonderful introductory stuff. Let me say of my fellow presenter that if history were a corpse, this man yes, this man would of course be the great body snatcher of the past, sneaking into history's graveyard under the cover of night, walking with the silent shuffle of determined research, eyes covered with the dark shawl of analysis, sack ready to receive the actual body of the past. He's the thief of history itself. He's Professor Extraordinaire. Of early modern British history at Plymouth University, it's James Daybell.
2: Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And you may well, you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a corpse-related historian, he'd be some kind of hybrid undertaker, stroke herald of the past, akin to Sir William Deathick. Circa 1542 to 1612, a long-serving officer of arms at the College of Arms in London. So meticulous is this man in preparing the bare bones of history to a solemn public. So schooled in the funerary protocols of dispatching the deceased deeds from yesteryear. But then, godlike, he breathes new life into the corpse of the past. Yes, you've guessed it, is the famous (laughs) historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hello everyone, Uh, breathing
1: life into historical corpses Very good Um, I wish I could do that actually It would
2: be quite quite a trick wouldn't it This was my idea, I wanted to do corpses The reason I wanted to do corpses Was because I came across a fascinating case Of Sir James Tilly's corpse Have you heard of this? Sir James Tilly um, is a, an, a 17th century gentleman uh, who lived at Pentilly Castle, uh, which is a, a house in Cornwall on the banks of the Tamar, just across the border from Devon. And when he died, he asked to be put in a mausoleum, a mausoleum that was that was built specially for him. And the thing about this mausoleum was that it had a beautiful view. Over the Tamar. And what was extraordinary about this, the man is a bit of an eccentric, and that is quite an understatement, was that when he died, he asked his surviving relatives to tie him to a chair that he was sat upon, and that food was to be left for him um, for when, when in two years he thought that he would be resurrected. And in the end, his family was so grossed out that they put a statue there instead and uh, and basically buried him under the mausoleum. And the family that live there now uh, were doing some <laughs> repairs to this uh, mausoleum, doing some repairs to the floorboards. And they dug, dug down and discovered uh, what was his body down there, slightly gunky. Um, so they they basically reburied him and get this you'll love this they reburied him with a bottle of slow gin and a little ditty mm. about what they'd been doing, or doing at Pentilli, uh in recent years so they've sort of laid him to rest but there are historical accounts of it from among uh, antiquarians so there's something in the gentleman's pocket magazine from 1828 Pentilly Cemetery The the cemetery at Pentilly in the parish of Fillerton, Cornwall, is situated on a very considerable eminence named Mont Ararat, overlooking the River Tamar which divides Cornwall from Devon and affording a prospect of great part of the border of the latter county. This building was erected agreeably to the will of Sir James Tilly of Pentilly Castle, who died in the year 1712, and directed that his body should be deposited here, placed in a chair in a sitting posture, which many people of the neighbourhood affirm they have seen from the window, although Mr Lysons, in his Magna Britannia, says that the direction in the will was not punctually complied with. For on opening a vault beneath the pavement not long ago, he observes his remains were found deposited in a coffin in the usual way. I have frequently heard my father say, and he was likely to know as he held a farm near the spot, that he had seen the coffin in the chair. And I am inclined to believe that the body has lately been deposited in a vault beneath as the window shutters were formerly left open to the view of every visitor. But within these few years have been closed up. What about that, hey? James, wonderful story there. Um, I, I loved the... That
1: made me think about self-mummification. Ooh. Have you come across that? Uh, I, I so, haven't, um, not self-mummification. Oh, no, wait, no, so it's... it's Except Japan, for the bachelor Japanese... party. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally talking off the top of my head here, but I'm thinking uh, a 17th, 18th century Japan and Japanese monks who um, practice self-mummification. They... they um, like before their death they they stick to a very specific diet and it's there's a lot of salt in it and some uh, very basic food kind of nuts and seeds and bark and um special tea i think called Arushi tea and um, the idea is that you you uh essentially mummify yourself and you die in a specific position ideally the lotus position and uh it was obviously very dangerous and it was practiced until like the late 1800s and then was outlawed um um, I suppose for about it's been outlawed for about a century or so. But um, an interesting thing to think about. So being mummified, uh, sitting up, um, there are so many different ways you can think about corpses. And uh, have you ever seen a corpse, James?
2: Uh, I do you know I haven't. No. no, no, I haven't either. No, um, my grandfather, seen... as a young boy, saw his one of his parent one or both of his parents dead. He was about six and he was sort of he was taken along to see the corpse and i think it just scarred him for life so i think when my when my um great grandmother died he didn't want anyone sort of going to you know see her at the uh, he didn't want my grandmother going to the uh, the funeral the home to sort of see her so he went and did all that so scarred was he but yeah it's not not something i would um i would welcome i don't think no, but there's obviously a whole, there's a whole history there of presenting
1: corpses oh, yes. to make them presentable, uh, which is fascinating. And obviously you can do people like Lenin. There you are. Um, that's an interesting one. So, you know, corpses that are put on display for very large numbers of people and um, preserving corpses. Obviously, Brent Nelson as well. after yes. The Battle of Trafalgar. Um and the, the I was just very interested in the moment of becoming a corpse. It, hmm. I I don't know the answer to this, but are you technically a corpse the moment your heart stops beating? You probably are. oh well,
2: you are no yeah. more. You are so it, you are. No, it is simply a corpse. Your your yourself, your living self, your soul, or however you define that, sort of gets separated from you. So your consciousness goes, and and it's simply a corpse. Mm. I think one of one yeah. of the things I'm fascinated about is moval, removal of corpses. So the burial of corpses and where corpses end up. There was a letter in The Guardian this week about Dylan Thomas's widow who wrote to the Home Office in the 1950s asking for his body to be exhumed because he was put in a very sort of lowly graveyard and she wanted him to be... You know, moved to somewhere more salubrious and fitting for what she described as you know one of Wales's you know finest poets. And they and they say yes, that's fine. You can move him. And they there's an application and a payment of a two pound fee. And she she never pays the fee, so it never moves. But lots of incidents of bodies being moved. Che Guevara's body, is, you know, his his corpse is is moved. Um, Oliver Cromwell's. Body uh, is famously sort of dug up, you know, um, you know, um, executed and then you know, scattered to the winds, and and has a sort of really yeah. interesting history. Um, but he was buried in Westminster Abbey primarily yeah. first, and then was exhumed.
1: Yes. Um, from there, uh, one of um, oh, so it's, a, it's a day for talking off the top of my head, but I think there are just two others who have been exhumed from Westminster Abbey. Uh, one of which is an ad- admiral, Admiral Robert Blake, and another one, uh, John Pym, I believe, um, English politician in the 17th century. He was he's also been
2: exhumed. So only three,
1: but it does seem quite a lot. And yeah.
2: uh, <laughs> Richard III's corpse that was found in a car park. Um, and sort of dug up, so yeah, all sorts of interesting. Whether that's a corpse or a skeleton, I don't know. Um, yeah. What's the difference between a corpse and a skeleton, Sam Willis? I would say that a skeleton has no has flesh. No flesh on on it. It. Yes, that's probably. It. Yes, that's probably. It. Where's Wikipedia <laughs> when you need it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what I would say. Um, just go back to my this this question of 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 when when a when a body becomes a corpse, and um, there's there is a wonderful history of. Deathbed Scenes. Mm, Um, Love a good deathbed scene. Me too. Uh, Poetry around deathbeds. uh, Lots of Victorian literature of uh, deathbed scenes. And um, this is a smashing poem. A very short poem from Thomas Hood. Um, So, first quarter of the uh, 1800s he lived. He died in 1845. We watched her breathing through the night. Her breathing soft and low. As in her breast the wave of life kept heaving to and fro. So silently we seemed to speak, so slowly moved about, as we had lent her half our powers to eke her living out. Our very hopes belied our fears, our fears our hopes belied. We thought her dying while she slept, and sleeping when she died. For when the morn came dim and sad and chill with early showers her quiet eyelids closed she had another morn than ours. What an amazing poem! Uh, Absolutely love that but I I particularly like the ending there um, that someone moving on to another morning than um, the one that we're all stuck with here on earth but at that moment of of life leaving her she became a corpse and um, that's going to have you know it's a whole sort of traditions and histories of of how how respect is shown to the immediate
2: dead. Absolutely excellent Sam. Excellent as ever. Now, I wanted to I was also thinking about some of the work that we've done on Vikings uh in particular on corpse doors and and I think Yes, oh yeah. there's a really They're interesting great. sort of I mean we we've got a chapter in that book which is about doors and doors basically being all about death and them being sort of portals between one world and the next between the sort of supernatural world and the world of the of the living and um, there is really interesting um examples of burial in doorways for example so one of the sort of classic mortuary practices found in the viking age is that of burying people either under the threshold of a door or actually in the doorway um, and there's a great sort of um, extract from the uh, Laxtola saga, which the, the figure Hrap calls his wife during an illness, fearing that it will, I quote, put an end to our life together. And he asks of her, Now, when I am dead, I wish my grave to be dug in the doorway of my fire hall and that I shall be put therein to, standing there in the doorway then I shall be able to keep a more searching eye on my dwelling. So in other words, you know, once a corpse is buried in the threshold, it allows the dead to keep watch over what was going on among the living. And doorway burials, it's not just in the sagas, but they also seem to have taken place or occurred in practice. And we know this from archaeological analysis of longhouses in southwestern Norway, for example, and the various sites where this was carried out, including, Sam, a dwelling in Ulandhaug, um, where uh, there's a concentration of 42 iron nails has been interpreted as the remains of a casket set inside a doorway. And alongside the nails were burnt human bone and an axe which archaeologists have dated these very clever archaeologists with all their technology and techniques they've dated to the 19th century one of the most extraordinary examples of this kind of doorway burial that I came across was that of a so-called elk man which was discovered in Birka in Sweden in 1988 and here Two male bodies were buried on top of each other under the threshold of a doorway. On top, placed in a hunch position, was a, a large man, um, they say in his 20s, who'd been decapitated. His head was then placed at the level of his chest and below him was a warrior aged between 40 and 50, buried face up with weaponry, beads and also a set of elk antlers. By his head and the significance of the antlers may be connected to a belief in the transformation in death from human to animal. But one of the most intriguing things is this phenomenon of corpse doors. And, and in each of the cases that I've explained before, doors are central to the ritual of Viking funerals as well as to the journey of the deceased from the living world to that of the dead. And they were viewed as an access point to other realms. But this also meant that these barriers needed to be controlled in order to prevent the dead from entering the world of the living. And this leads us to the mortuary practice of the corpse door or the cadaver door. And this features in saga literature as well as in surviving uh, architectural features in ancient houses. So the, the idea is that after relatives have... After the somebody has dis- become deceased, you're left with the corpse, relatives close the eyes, the mouth and the nostrils of the deceased. So in fact, in fact, what they're doing here is they are figuratively closing the cadaver's doorways. So after all that, a hole is made. Um, after all that, a hole is made in the external wall to create the corpse door. And what happens is you either remove the bricks or the stones from the wall or by cutting a hole in wooden planks. And we can see this in various sort of um, in various surviving ancient houses uh, throughout um, Scandinavia. There's a reconstructed example of a corpse door cut out of a wooden wall and then sealed in the open air museum in Nordfjord in Norway and the idea is that once this exit was made the body then passes outside outside of the house through this hole instead of being carried through the main door and the corpse door is then resealed before the funeral party returns home. And the idea then is that the ghost of the departed would not be able to find its way back in since the exit that it used to exit the house no longer existed. It was all (laughs) blocked up. And in this manner, the boundaries of the house are maintained and the dead are barred from the house. So there we are, Sam. Uh, Corpse doors, Viking corpse doors. Yeah, wonderful stuff. Um, Quite
1: creepy as well, I think. Very
2: creepy.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
1: Uh, I've just been to see a play in London called 2.22. It's a ghost story. And I can't possibly tell you what happened, but it's very spooky. And um been really enjoying uh, some podcasts about the supernatural at the minute and um, also working on some, um, some TV development stuff to do with ghosts, which is quite fun. So I'm really into my ghosts at the minute and I got quite interested in uh, decomposition of bodies as well. What happens to a corpse? And... That, of course, has its own history, and it's fascinating. It's so easy for us to take for granted when we're sitting down watching Netflix and some some crime drama where there are some doctors and specialist forensic people telling, telling the, the investigators exactly what's happened, but they only know that. They can only identify what's happened to a body, and they know how long it's been dead for, for example... Um, because of some very clever people in history. And it's really quite recent history as well. So it's certainly long, long after old Sherlock's time, um, where you'd assume they already knew in the Victorian period how long someone may have been dead for. They kind of did, but they didn't know in detail. They didn't know in detail because no one had ever researched it. The idea wasn't conceived until 1971, Uh, Very, uh, very late, as far as I was concerned. Very surprised. And it wasn't even begun as a programme of research until 1980. So another nine years of someone actually uh, saying that this is going to be okay. Um, And it all happens at the University of Tennessee at the Anthropological Research Facility. And it's all set up by a forensic anthropologist called Dr. William M. Bass. And he is asked while he's teaching the 60s at the university of canvas if it was able to determine the time of death of a decomposing cow and he said no um, but he knew how to do it so he needed uh, to do some extra research and the way to do that was to allow uh, a cow to, to decompose and to observe it now the obvious leap you've got to make here james is to know when how long ago a human died is you need to have studied human corpses and the decomposing process and what he does is he he's he sets this this all up after an experience he has in 1977 the year i was born because someone has discovered a murder victim on top of a grave and the grave is a really interesting one it's a grave of a confederate soldier from the american civil war it's in tennessee in franklin tennessee and this guy's been killed at the battle of nashville in 1864 But they find a body on top of the grave. They can't quite work out what's going on. And they want to know how long this body has been there. So initially, Dr Bass uh, estimates that the body's been dead for less than one year. But then they properly investigate the clothing which was found around the body. They found out that it, it actually was the body of the soldier who had been buried in 1864. So he'd been dead for over a century. Um, So it shows us how little we knew about identifying the time of death, even in the 1970s. And what happened is that some grave robbers had actually punctured the soldier's coffin made off with some uh, various bits and pieces. The coffin was made of cast iron and it had been airtight and that had largely prevented the decomposition. And they'd removed the body and then they reburied it on top of the coffin, which is how it all happened. So after that, Dr Bass decides he needs to set something up to find out how... Human bodies change after decomposition. Not only does he does a lot of work, he's got some uh, fantastic PhD students working with him. One of them is a chap called William Rodriguez. And he particularly focuses on insects and how they behave around human corpses. um, And records, you know, changes in the body timings. And he notices the blowflies, particularly, they swarm across the carcass and they start producing eggs, uh, particularly around the body's orifices. And then not just blowflies; we've got other uh, other insects, yellow jackets, and wasps. The eggs turn into maggots. Uh, beetles begin assembling on the body to feed on the body itself, but also on the maggots. So the bodies become a you know a host to other uh, organisms, which then attract more or, more more animals, and so on. They identify different stages of composition, and they do it in a very structured and orderly manner Um, and they turn it into into a science and it's completely horrific if you actually want to see how how they did it and how the 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 mutilations of the corpse and the decomposition change over time. Now that in itself is an interesting piece of history but what's what great about it is that it's it's then used for some really interesting Events and one of which is in the aftermath of the Serbian-Croatian uh, civil war in the mid nineteen nineties. And uh, Bill Rodriguez, the very guy who studied under William Bass and had done his ex- experiments on on body decomposition, is summoned. He's flown out uh, with U.S. armed forces to Kosovo just a year after the armistice. Um, So 1995, and he looks at 300 victims from two different regions and provides evidence at the war crimes trial for the initial indictments against Slobodan Milosevic. Um, And uh, he he dies before the trial is complete, but but he is essentially found guilty of uh, forced deportation of of nearly a million million ethnic Albanians um, and, uh, and all sorts of terrible... Um, crimes against humanity, and what is interesting is that th- he he was well, a hugely important part of the case against him was this scientific backing provided by uh, the Americans, which was which reinforced eyewitness accounts, um, uh, claiming uh, examples of of crimes. And because they, they were able to identify the difference between damage done by animals or quick mass burial uh, and gunshot wounds, shrapnel wounds, rifle butts to the head, whatever it might be, and also um, the difference between that and and animals uh, uh, taking uh, corpses to to pieces. <laughs> so there we are, James. A really surprisingly interesting and multi-layered
2: history of corpses. Very, and it links very, very cleverly to what I was going to talk about because all these. This discussion about what happens to corpses once somebody has died in those sort of first few days links to some of the stuff that I've been reading about. And I've been reading a couple of books for this. Uh, Ralph Holbrook's book on death, uh, which is excellent. I've talked about in the past, death, religion and the family. But also uh, the brilliant David Cressy's book, Birth, Marriage and Death, Ritual, Religion and the life cycle in Tudor and Stuart England. A lot of these are these books are concerned with the the religion, the doctrine around around death and dying and how to live a, a good good how to live a good life and then die a good death. But also they are concerned with the rituals that are associated with death and burial and bereavement and all of those kinds of funerals and all of those kinds of things. Um, But if you one of the things that you can hone in on is the treatment of the corpse. And you can think about this in in religious ways and you can think about it in really practical ways, which relates to the kind of thing that you were saying, Sam, because, as you know, as soon as uh, somebody dies, um, the 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 corpse is on a sort of fast track to, you know, decay. At that point, and even those people who, uh, in the 16th and 17th century, died a good death. So rather than sort of, you know, being in pain and hallucinating and and um, and and not behaving in what is seen as a sort of spiritually pious way, even those people who died a good death, you know, basically what's left behind is a is a corpse, a cadaver which is basically full of blood, pus, excrement, urine, vomit, sweat, you know, all of that. Rigor mortis is, sets in pretty quickly, putrefaction, corruption will, you know, with the sort of stink and everything that, you know, that all that leads. So actually, it for most people, it was imperative to bury as quickly as possible and we can we can follow in parish records we can follow the timings of people's burials and there's an estimate here in York a group of Yorkshire parishes in the mid Stuart period where you can check the dates and it's estimated that 95% of all bodies were buried within two days Uh, 41% were buried on the same day the person died and what this meant was that the you know that the grave diggers had to set work in whatever conditions, and you know, and deal with it. The cold weather, of course, could delay it. Or really, really wet weather, where the ground was sort of, you know, super boggy, would could deal with it. But there are examples of people who are buried literally within a matter of hours. There's an example of uh, a cobbler from Dagenham in Essex in 1606. Uh, He sounds Known as Christopher. (laughs) He was buried, Sam, within four hours of dying. Uh, There's another woman uh, named Isabel Fieldsend of Waddington in Lincolnshire, who in 1635 was buried so quickly that it upset her friends, who protested that she was buried like a dog. Um, And, Mm. you know, and of course, you, you can imagine all of the problems that are associated with too longer delays stink disease you know all of those sort of problems that you associate with a decaying body now for most of the for, for most people they would be buried pretty quickly for the the upper classes for the elites for the aristocracy or the royalty what's noticeable is that the body is not is not buried Often, for a couple of weeks, and this is because these become really important uh, political occasions of sociability that have to follow all of the sort of correct ceremonial arrangements and correct protocols. I talked about the the heralds uh, you know in your introduction and the de- deathic as the herald and and basically, if you were an aristocrat, you would be buried in a particularly sort of elaborate way with. We, you know with all sorts of people in attendance and a correct number of people following and all of that kind of stuff that all takes time to sort out and of course what that means is you then need to do stuff to the body in order to preserve it and in indeed to to embalm it um and you know embalm it or sheath it in 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 lead or you know or wrap it in as in in some sort of you know cloth or something sort of various sort of you know ways of of dealing with that, um, but one of the things that's really fascinating is that as part of this embalming process, the it's really common for the you know to eviscerate and bury the body apart from the heart, the brain, the tongue, etc. as part of this embalming process. And this seems to have gone on. This was a, a sort of medieval practice that seems to have gone on into the. The 16th century, and there's a wonderful example um, relating to Sir Henry Sidney, who dies in in 1586, um, who has his heart saved and then buried in a special heart coffin, and the heart coffin itself survived and has a looks like a sort of lead coffin, and is and is inscribed uh, on the outside. Here lieth the heart of Sir Henry Sidney. Um, and 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 although examples of this are are quite rare, it's a superb um, it's a superb example of this kind of of this kind of receptacle for an element of the corpse. But then there are all sorts. If we think about the the practices that associate that are associated with the with the corpse, there are all sorts of customs, such as watching a corpse. So sitting up all night in attendance on you know, watching on the over the dead body. This is something that's practised by all social classes. Um, and it's a practice that continues long um, after the Reformation. Um, and, you know, one of the practical benefits of this is basically to prevent anyone tampering with the corpse. Um, there are then people who are, you know, who are paid to clean the corpse and prepare it for burial. And these are often sort of menial... Um, tasks often given to women and they are paid for watching and washing and laying out and winding you can often find these in in household accounts so in the reign of charles i for example uh, the west country gentleman joyce jeffries paid five shillings for and i quote the shroud being five yards and a half Of white calico, three shillings more for the tape to wind about it, and sixpence for helping to shroud and dress the corpse. Um, And then we can think about, you know, the kinds of things that people would have been buried in. And this brings us to uh, Ralph Holbrook's book, The Death, Religion and the Family in England, 1480 to 1750. There's a lovely section in here where he talks about the kinds of things that people would have been buried in uh, a shroud or winding sheet um, they then be there might be a shirt a cap there's a there's a record for uh, 1714 one William Phillips went to his grave and I was very interested in this because he was buried in a, a super fine Norwich crepe sheet shroud and Sam Willis would you guess gloves I, if i'm when i'm buried i'm gonna be i'm gonna be buried in in fine the finest gloves i think um but the 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 overwhelming majority of cor- corpses are buried with very little preparation if you think about the the amount of deaths uh poverty people don't have the time the resources or the money to do that and you know and they're they're you know dressed in very sort of makeshift uh basic you know often just sort of a vague sort of sheet um so it's very interesting to sort of hear about all of these practices that are associated with corpses um we could also then go on and have a, and think about open casket funerals um and the and actually the rituals that are around um uh, that are around going and visiting uh corpses and paying respects to to corpses there are all sorts of all sorts of um superstitious things about touching corpses you know beforehand there are also various sort of superstitions connected with the bleeding of corpses in the case of of murders or crimes committed if a corpse bleeds within the presence of a murderer it is for for a long time it was thought to be evidence of somebody's guilt um there are all sorts of things about corpse candles as well so if a if a candle if a ghostly flame is seen shortly before a death of a in the neighborhood it is supposed to be a, an omen for uh, for a, a death uh corpses, corpses are opening and closing eyes where the corpses are limp you know all sorts of things um that you can pouring pouring salt on corpses unburied corpses on a sunday It's an ominous sign if a corpse should be left unburied on Sunday, for this will mean that the death of another of the village community will occur before the week is out. I have frequently heard this strange idea expressed with utmost sincerity and with a genuine belief in the inevitability of such a correlation of events, which was recorded in the Sussex County magazine in 1944. Goodness me, we should do more on corpses, Sam. There's, there is so much to do. And it's interesting
1: what you were saying about paying to access corpses, because I what made me think about, about it as well was uh, I've definitely seen the bog the bog body. Um it's the the Lindo man, is it the Lindo man in the British Museum? And I, I've got very clear memories of going to see that. I think shortly after he was discovered when I was a kid. And there are um all sorts of other examples of of bog bodies. So these these are bodies that are as a rule um thousands of years old which have survived because they died in um in, in curious uh, situations which led to them um often ending up in bogs where there there is uh, none of the aerobic conditions you need for a, for a body to decompose so they're they're basically in perfect condition the tolland man is a truly fantastic one um, and that's in the Jutland Peninsula in Denmark and he died around the 5th century BC the point I want to make here is that from investigating these people they know what this guy had for his last meal a um, bit of porridge bit of barley, flax, wild seeds a little bit of fish it all sounds very um, uh, uh, contemporary what a, lo- a lovely little healthy meal this Scandi had. diet um, Yes, yeah, Gaudi Diet. Um But you, they, uh, they've been able to take his fingerprints. They've been able to recreate uh, a huge amount from this person. So those are scientists kind of piling into a historical body. Right. A be- my point here is that because of the extraordinary amounts we can discover uh, from corpses, um we also as historians and archaeologists need to be very much aware of the ethical issues of doing so so what happens i mean this this guy we think was actually um was murdered and it was a a human sacri- it was a human sacrifice but the the point is is that he ended up in the bog because of traditions and rituals associated with his time um and yet you know people are quite happy just just cutting him open and seeing, seeing what's happened. Perhaps it is the age of this corpse that makes people feel like it's okay to do so. But we're certainly not allowed to go around exhuming people in Westminster Abbey, or wherever it may be. Um, because of respect of religion. Because of um, the, the the relatively recent time this has happened, and it all it's all worth thinking about about whether that's okay, whether it is okay to historically investigate corpses of any description, whether we should be um, uh, 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 digging up more more bodies to be able to find out all we can about the past. That's probably the most extreme way of looking at it. I'm 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 not. Uh necessarily anti that at all. Um, But obviously there are some uh, people with very, very um, strong religious convictions who think that digging up bodies is a very bad idea. So maybe it's to do with the accidental discovery of bodies then allows us to investigate them with the full force of historical and archaeological power and i'm not necessarily sure that accident is necessarily the right way to to base any kind of strategy um, interesting stuff james a bit of a bit of a nest
2: of vipers there goodness me that sounds like a moral quagmire sam willis and yeah, it one is, that isn't i'm it? not yeah. going to dip her toe into uh, no. not in not no. in the dying embers of our the corpse of our episode i don't think <laughs> <laughs> what's what what, what, no. what are we doing next um, we are doing first
1: and surprise. Oh, do
2: you know what? Have you been to Exeter Cathedral and seen that amazing moon sculpture? No. Oh my God, it's incredible! If any of you are listening to this in anywhere near Devon, go and have a look at it. It was a it's a project that uh, uh, an artist has done um, in connection with NASA. Uh, so they've got all the sort of photographs of. The surface of the moon and put them on this basically moon-like sphere-like object, and it is huge. And it is in the—it basically takes up most of the main uh, part of the church. Uh, it is enormous. It's well worth going to see. And apparently, if you go along at night, it's all lit up uh, as moons as moons should be. So I think we're going to take a little Daybell family outing there. One. One of these nights over the next couple of weeks, so we should do something around something moony. I think. Yep. Fine. Let's do the
1: moon. I'd love the to do. moon, guys. Thank you so much for listening to our history of corpses. Great stuff. Um, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Doctor Sam Willis, and if you're interested in maritime history, the history of the sea, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast.
2: And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I am at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and check us out there and befriend us. And check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for all our back catalogue and for signed books, should you wish such a thing. It is Valentine's Day. There is probably not enough time to get that ready, um, but, um, you know, that would be a good idea. Maybe for an early Easter present or spring or something. Like that, and also if you would like to support us and become a patron, head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Uh, anything that you can do to help support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past, very welcome indeed. Uh, meanwhile, uh, be well uh, wherever you are and see you soon. Bye, cheerio, guys. Bye bye.